Aboriginal owners of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and elders past, present and emerging, and to acknowledge that the land on which we meet is stolen land, that sovereignty was never ceded on this land. Um, as we look at the Beatitudes and as this morning we look at blessed are those who mourn, it's a particularly appropriate for us to acknowledge the Indigenous people um, and their unacknowledged grief. I want to begin just with this half of the Beatitude, with the first half of the Beatitude, um, and just spend um, a minute reflecting on this phrase, blessed are those who mourn. Um, I want us to imagine that we've come across this phrase for the very first time outside of any other context. Just the phrase, blessed are those who mourn. Another translation of the word blessed is just happy. Happy are those who mourn. And I want us for a minute just to reflect on um, the absurdity, the unlikely nature of putting the words happy and grief together. Um, one of the things I want to do this morning in this first section is to um, to make these words of the Beatitudes, which for, for many of us are very familiar, to make them unfamiliar. Um, so let's begin just for a minute of silence reflecting on the phrase, happy, happy are those who mourn, and reflecting on what can that possibly mean? How can that possibly be true? So let's just reflect just a, one minute of silence. Blessed are those who mourn. I reflected on this beatitude this week, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, I thought a lot about the comma. I'm an English teacher, so I, I'm a little bit obsessed with punctuation. And I thought a lot about the comma, blessed are those who mourn, comma, for they shall be comforted. And I reflected on the fact that in our lives that comma can be a week, a month, a year, 10 years, it can be our entire life uh, living in a state of grief um, with the hope or expectation of comfort that doesn't come. And that that comma is um, like Easter Saturday. It is the neglected day of Easter. This, we think about Jesus' death and about Jesus' resurrection, but we, we very rarely reflect on Easter Saturday, that, that pause, that comma between death and resurrection, and reflect on how much of our lives is actually spent in an Easter Saturday state, rather than Easter Sunday. And that in some ways, our experience of crucifixion, our experience at the most intense place of grief is an experience where we are surrounded by, by love and support and where we are seen um, because people see the immediacy of our pain and grief when tragedy strikes. But often that space soon after an experience of tragedy 
uh, where it's old news for everyone else, but it is still an incredible sense of loneliness and grief for us. It's the loneliest time. So today we're going to explore um, this beatitude, uh, and I thought it was really important for us not to leap too quickly to the second half of the beatitude, but spend some time initially reflecting on the first half and on the comma. Um, So with that in mind, I'm going to get Tamsin to read out um, one of my favorite psalms, um, Psalm 88. What's so remarkable about it is it's, um, and I've talked about this before, it's, it's the only psalm where there is no redemptive note at the end. There's nothing at the end to step into redemption, to step into resurrection. It's all Easter Saturday, this psalm. So I'm just going to get Tamsin to read it for us. Thank you, Nicole. Yahweh, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken me from me, my closest friends, and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Yahweh, every day. Spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or all your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O God. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Yahweh, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. I thank God that this psalm is in the Bible um, because in a very strange upside-down way it can be enormously comforting to know that it's there, um, to know that there is space in the Bible for um, that state of Easter Saturday, that state of unresolved grief and sense of abandonment, um, that even that is included. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song. Um, I'm going to pray for those of us who find ourselves in this state this morning, um, for whom 
any words of comfort feel cold and empty. Um, and I want to acknowledge that if that's you this morning and if you are just not in a place to hear any words of comfort because of the sense of abandonment that you carry, the sense of grief that you carry, that um, this is still a place for you. God, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for the fact that in your word um, there is space for our sense of abandonment by you. There is space for our unresolved grief. There is space for our sense of mourning that never ends. Thank you for the upside-down comfort that a psalm like this offers to us when we feel no comfort. And I pray for those of us here this morning that are in this state, I pray that they might still feel that there is a place for them here and that whatever is said this morning, whatever words of comfort are offered, that they will not feel like their experience is cheapened or ignored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few things about today. Uh, we've made things unnecessarily complicated this morning, um, technology-wise. We're not very fancy. I used to come from a really fancy, well-produced community, and this is not it. This is the Church of Awkward Transitions. So um, things are really deliberately crap around here. But it does make things difficult when uh, <laughs> you actually need stuff to work. So uh, I've, Warwick is our amazing sound guru um, for today. Yeah. Who is just a wonderful human, by the way. Um, and we made life really complicated for him and his um, overlord slash assistant, Kerry, who's um, in training. Uh, so bear with us today and be patient if um, things take a little bit of time. Uh, we've got a new computer going and the clicker doesn't work with it and all kinds of other things. Secondly, uh, a second content warning. Today, um, the uh, beatitude is blessed are those who mourn and uh, it's impossible to go around this one without acknowledging um, some of the ways the systems of the world work in creating injustice. Um, and as Tamsin mentioned, we are um, looking into and um, exploring the African-American experience um, during the 60s today. Uh, and so that involves uh, death and lynching and all kinds of other horrendous, horrific things. Um, and so today will be a bit heavy if it's too heavy we're trying not to be gratuitous, um, but if it's too heavy for you today, we it, it, it's okay to go and get a coffee instead. Um, the last thing is we will be ending on some reflective time, and the service at the end will just end with some reflection. Um, and so when you are finished reflecting and having communion, um, you can about your lives, but maybe just be conscious of where the rest of the community is at. Um, 
that yeah, some people may want to take some extra time. So by all means, hang around and chat. Uh, but if uh, you are standing close to someone who's still trying to commune, then maybe you know share this picture. That would be great. Oh, the kids all announced themselves at some point with salary sticks, and so reflection is over. Okay, because <laughs> they are our true masters. The other thing I want to say is that uh, we try and have discussion wherever possible because uh, this is a community of dialogue, uh, but we can't fit me rambling, you guys rambling, and reflection all at the same time. So today we're going to highlight reflection instead of discussion. So if you feel like you don't have a voice this morning, um, good. No, no. Well, I thought you guys could ramble, then we could reflect, but it'd be a very disjointed reflection. So, you know, I'm going to ramble instead. Anyway, enough rambling. Uh, this is our beautiful um, Coptic icon of the Beatitudes. Um, you'll notice that as a um, symbol of our poverty in spirit, it's at a very low resolution, so it's quite blocky, which I thought was really appropriate. Um, if we can go to the next slide. Uh, these are Matthew's Beatitudes, and uh, we're working on... Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted today. Oh, a little revision of last week in case you missed it, or uh, more probably that you just weren't listening. Um, Beatitudes, the first thing to note is that they're not instructions, they're descriptions. Um, Jesus first and foremost here is describing something. He's inviting us into a way of seeing the world. He's inviting us into uh, asking some different questions about um, what we might assume about where God is and the way that God works in the world. They aren't um, instructions where if you do this, then this will happen. Um, if you apply this principle, then you will get this result. He is trying to describe where God dwells, an alternate, an alternate reality, and invite us into it. When we read these blessed R's, um, a good approach you may or may not have heard this, but a good approach to um, reading a text like this is to ask the uh, them, us, and me questions of what did this mean to the first people who heard it? And then secondly, what could this mean to us as a community? And then thirdly, what might this mean to me? For those of us, many of us were raised on very individualistic modes of faith where we sort of mind the Bible for a principle to apply to our lives. Uh, and in doing so, we applied our context onto an ancient text. And there's a time and a place for that. But I think to help understand what it might be trying to get across first is to try and understand what would the people who were on the mountain that Jesus was talking to, what would they have understood? What questions were swimming around for them? What were they asking? Uh, and then we can work out what that might mean for us without just superimposing our meaning. So very quickly with the blessed R's, the um, people in the era of Palestine in the first century um, primarily assumed it was primarily Jews. We're ask, all asking the question of uh, where is God in our context? What is God doing here in this place? When we live in a land that is occupied by foreigners, God promised us this land. God promised us that God would come through for us. And here we are yet again 
um, in captivity, but this time in our own land. Blessed are, another way of understanding it would be to say that God is with, or God draws near, or that God sides with. Whose side is God on is the question behind um, the question of who is blessed. And then as in now, it's really easy to assume that God is with those who are prosperous, that God is with those who are powerful, and that God is with those who are pure, uh, that there's all of these outward markers of the favor of God. But Jesus here is pointing to the deep logic of the kingdom of God. He's trying to describe the way the world is when God is in charge. Where is God? The kingdom of God is breaking in, and this is how to recognize it. If we really want to know where God is, this is where God is found. So today, we're looking at blessed are those who mourn. We can go to the next slide. So Matthew's version, we talked last week about Luke's version having woes added to them. So Matthew's, you know, a bit nicer. Um, so just stick with that one if you want to read it for yourself. Um, there's a joke. Luke, I have to tell you when it's jokes too, you know. Uh, Luke has got these woes added to them. So in Matthew, it's blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. In Luke, it's blessed are those who weep now for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. And when we look at uh, Luke's version in particular, it begins to become apparent why it's important not just to superimpose our experience on these things. Uh, we can easily read mourning in the sense of those who have lost something or lost loved ones. Um, if you have had someone who's died recently and you read this verse, the automatic individual take home is that God is with you in your loss of a person. And while we can get to that and while that is true, um, if you read the second half of the verse with that interpretation, <laughs> you're on a really slippery slope. Uh, blessed are those of you who have just lost someone because God's with you. The rest of you stop laughing because something really bad's going to happen to you. Like that's just a bit mean. Uh, <laughs> so if you're not mourning right now, your time will come. Um, that's, that's not quite what Jesus is getting at here. How mean would that be? Jesus is talking to people living on the edge of survival. Their land occupied by the greatest military power the world has ever known. All of them asking, where is God now? Some were making the most of it, siding with the Romans against their own people. Others were planning to fight. Others were setting up enclaves in the desert trying to hide away, but most didn't have that option and were just trying to survive, scratching a living. Um, womanist theologian M. Sean Copeland um, talks a bit about this in her book, Infleshing Freedom. She says this, and it's in your PowerPoint as well if you want to read along. In his flesh, in his body, Jesus knew refugee status occupation and colonization, social regulation and control. Roman military intimidation and brutality, coupled with the Herodian economic exploitation and taxation, uprooted and displaced many people from their ancestral lands, drove them into debt, forced them into wage labor as carpenters or day laborers or servants or petty merchants. 
Ordinary fishermen found their enterprise disrupted by the policies of um, Herod Antipas, who, who erected the city of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee. Under Antipas's taxation policies, ordinary peasant fishermen could no longer cast their nets freely from shore, could no longer own a boat or beach a catch, and probably had to sell what they caught to Antipas's factories. Jesus lived among the common people, subjects of empire whose bodies were forced through the winepress of empire building. The old people in small rural villages of Galilee to which he traveled carried in their bodies memories of brutality, of the Roman army burning their homes, raping women, enslaving the able-bodied and killing the infirm. These women and men knew forced labor, privation, and loss. They were shrewd and wary peasants who had lived long enough at subsistence level to know exactly where the line is drawn between poverty and destitution. They knew all about rule and power and kingdom and empire, but they knew it in terms of tax and debt, malnutrition and sickness, agrarian oppression and demonic possession. This is the context of the Beatitudes. Not just inconvenience, but danger. Not just an empty bank account, but the inability to be able to earn, to be able to support your loved ones. This is the context of the Beatitudes. People who are desperate, people who feel unheard. People who are mourning their loss of dignity, their loss of land, their loss of identity. People who feel powerless and unheard asking, where is God in this? Where is our way out? Does anyone hear our cry? Death and loss has a strange way of creating two speeds in the world. Life touched by loss flows down to a trickle for those close to it, begging for attention. Yet for, outside those, for those outside the bubble, time keeps on marching forth unfazed. I remember when I was, it must have been sometime around, when I was, when I was around 20, uh, one of my mum's childhood friends who had, I'd spent a little bit of time with, who lived in another town, um, tragically lost her husband. He was a painter and a cherry picker collapsed. Um, and he died as a result of that. And to make matters worse, the um, company then got sued for malpractice. And so she was left dealing with grieving the loss of her husband and a lawsuit, um, which threatened to take everything that they had and now that she had. And my mum, because I was a young pastor, thought it would be a good idea if I went and spent some time with her, which I was happy to do, but just completely ill-equipped <laughs> to know how to navigate properly. Uh, and so I went and stayed for a week in her home just to be around and be present. And she was just so deeply wounded and so disorientated and so, um, yeah, just so full of grief, grief and loss. I remember going from my kind of very busy out six nights a week, um, getting stuff done life, and just being teleported into this alternate one where I sat and just listened to her describe 
what it was like to lose your husband of 30 years as a person who wasn't even married. I could barely even conceive of it. But I remember sitting up late one night talking with her about this, and then the next morning going to the supermarket with her and carrying that with me. And I remember looking at all these people shopping and just feeling angry at them, going, what are you doing? How can you still be carrying on shopping as if nothing's happened when this woman here has lost everything? And just having a tiny taste of that experience of all the clock stopping. This community that Jesus was speaking to who were caught in the second speed of mourning and grief while the rest of the empire marches on. Jesus is saying, blessed are you who mourn. The world carries on, but God does not. God waits. God waits and calls for attention. You may feel like your little voice goes unheard. God hears, and woe to those who refuse to hear you. Again, our series, we talked about the fact that God is not Zeus. God does not continually overpower, but God slowly sits and calls and lures and woos and cries out, that all thought things will be drawn to the most loving possibilities. And it's easy to understand for this community of people why they would feel like, so what? But what are you going to do to overthrow the army? What are you going to do to feed us? But God quietly is at work. In this text, you can't escape a judgment vindication motif. This is a word of warning as much as a word of comfort for those of us with the luxury of an option, which side we take has consequences. This morning, I would like us to try and experience something um, and to help us feel this in our bones. We're going to jump forward a couple of thousand years into another two-speed era. The United States in the 60s, the civil rights movement is gathering steam. After centuries of slavery and oppression and violence, the demand for justice for African Americans is slowly beginning to gain traction. It seems unbelievable to us this is only 50 years ago, but lynchings, the hanging and torture of African Americans who are perceived to have stepped out of line is still happening on American streets. The 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama was, was bombed by the KKK in 1963 with 15 sticks of dynamite, killing four girls and injuring 22 others. The FBI knew almost straight away who the perpetrators were, but no one was even charged until 14 years later. Voiceless. 
In the same year, civil rights activist Meg Evers was murdered by another Klan member in Mississippi. Nina Simone, a black artist who had broken into mainstream radio consciousness, released the protest song, Mississippi Goddamn, in the wake of this. We're just going to watch a small extract from a uh, Netflix documentary called um, What Happened, Miss Simone, which if you ever get a chance to see is, yeah, well worth seeing. died in Birmingham, the nation's most segregated big city. Dynamite exploded on Sunday morning, killed four little girls, injured 20 other Negroes. It was one of more than 40 bombings in that Birmingham area. Kids were murdered in Birmingham on a Sunday and in Sunday school in a Christian nation, and nobody cares. When the kids got killed in that church, that didn't. First you get depressed, and after that you get mad. And when these kids got bombed, I just sat down and wrote this song. And it's a very moving, violent song, because that's how I feel about the whole thing. Alabama's gotten me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Mississippi goddamn got my attention. What she was doing was different. There's something about a woman. If you look at all the suffering that black folks went through, not one black man would dare say Mississippi goddamn. And then to have someone with her statue talking about your problem, you know how happy they had to be? We all wanted to say it. She said it. Mississippi, goddamn. I'm dogs on my trail. School children sitting in jail. Black cat across my path. I think every day is gonna be my last. Oh, but my country is full of lies. We all gonna die and die like flies. But I don't trust nobody anymore. to write a song called Mississippi Goddamn. It was revolutionary. They didn't have cursing on the radio or on television or anything. DJs refused to play it. And boxes of the 45s used to be sent back from the radio stations, cracked in two. Well, that's just the trouble. We 
we might just pause it there for a second. Whoop. Um, and, and just unplug the um the ding dong and plug it back in. The federal marshals were called in, and they were standing on the tops of all. buildings downtown with guns. Seated in front of the stage facing the audience was Martin Luther King, Ralph Bunch from the UN, and a lot of other worldwide dignitaries. You had Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, Sidney Poitier, Bill Cosby, Leonard Bernstein, Harry Belafonte, and we did Mississippi Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? said that after she sang that song, she got so angry that her voice broke. And from Mississippi goddamn on, it never, ever returned to its former octave. But I think that mom's anger is what sustained her. The energy and the creativity and the passion of those days is really what kept her going. I thought it was something else. You know, I liked it. It put a 45 out on it, and I knew it had a lot of impact. But my complaint was that while I was always pushing for the commercial side of the picture, she got sidetracked with all of these civil rights activities. When the civil rights thing came up, all of a sudden, I could let myself be heard about what I'd been feeling all the time. I was young. I knew to stay alive as a black family. We had to work. We had to keep secrets. We never complained about being poor or being taken advantage of or not getting our share. We had to keep our mouths shut as I walked across that railroad track every Saturday. So I knew to break the silence meant a confrontation with the white people of that town. And though I didn't know I knew it, if the black man rises up Half the records got sent back, smashed in two. The reason given because the song had goddamn in it. This is the luxury of people living on the other speed. 
blasphemy to those in power is not the desecration and dehumanization of those who bear God's image, but the words of God damn. How ironic. The privilege is getting to be offended at someone else's protest. By and large, the white American church refused to hear, refused to see that God is the God of the lynched and the mobbed and the beaten. The beatitude, blessed are the poor. God is with the powerless. just didn't stick. And our question is, is what are we being invited to see? What are we being invited into in this beatitude? If God is with those who mourn, if God is with those who cry out, then what does that ask of us? We're going to listen to that song together in a moment. And then when the song ends, we have um, provided a place if you'd like to pray, to pray over that side. If you'd like to grieve, if you'd like to mourn, if you'd like to say a prayer. Um, There's some candles up the back of the sound desk and you can grab a taper candle and stand around and hold it or sit back down in your seat if you like and say a prayer and then when you're finished, um, place it in the sand and light it. Um, that's our place of mourning this morning. Over the side, we've got communion. When you've said your prayer, please feel free to go over and take the elements and eat and drink in your own time. Um, if you need a place of comfort, stand a while there and let God find you in that place. Um, sit with that question. If God is with those who mourn, where is the comfort? Where is the warmth? What is he inviting us into? What is she inviting us into? We're going to listen together and then when the song concludes, I'd like to pass the time down to you. Amen. You're more than welcome.